Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I'm your host, Brittany, and today I have a wonderful guest to share with you, Kelly Ramsey. Kelly is a passionate educator who is committed to building a reflective experience to support and inspire the early childhood workforce. She has contributed over three decades to the field of early care and education as a classroom teacher, child care center director, training coordinator, national leader, and college professor. Kelly is a published author of Families and Educators Together, Building Great Relationships That Support Young Children and Stories of Resistance, Learning from Black Women in Early Care and Education. She brings her experience as an intentional parent to support in cultivating spaces for authentic dialogue and intentional practices. I'm so excited to share this conversation with Kelly. We talked about everything from parent engagement, involvement, storytelling, having a reflective practice of mentorship in early childhood education. Kelly has such a wealth of knowledge that it was just fantastic to speak with her and learn from her. And I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. So let's jump into it. Hello and welcome to Conscious Pathways. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so- I'm so excited to have you on. You've got such a great background and I'm excited to share everything with our audience. It's a pleasure for me to be here as well. (laughs) I know we were just talking about before we started recording, you said it was 17 degrees where you are right now? Yeah, 17 degrees in Oklahoma. So we will be inside today. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely an inside day to be. (laughs) For sure. Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, why education and why specifically early childhood education? What was your inspiration? So um, I started in education because I wanted to support families and children with understanding my education field, knowing families don't get that same level of um, information about early childhood. So I wanted to be a partner with families, and that started me on my pathway, which I've been on for three and a half decades. Wow. And parent engagement and parent involvement is so important. So I love that that was a lot of your inspiration to start with it, because we think about early childhood education, obviously the image that comes to our mind is the child. It's a very big, important part of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also their families are really important and they're a big aspect of, you know, the, the culture in which that child is bringing up in. And they have a really big impact on everything we see about going into that child. So it's like creating that big partnership is so important between, you know, educators and the families, right? It's not just the educ it's not just the classroom learning. It's what's happening outside of that too, which is so, so important. Yes. Yes. I um one of the images I have um is something I do when I train um teachers when we put the shoes in a circle. And those shoes represent every child who comes into the room but it also represents the families that they are growing up in. Because the truth is we have children for a year, maybe three if we're in early head start, um, but they, the family is with the child for a lifetime. So there has to be a partnership between the teacher and the family in order to support the children's learning as well. Yes. Yes, there, there really does need to be that that partnership that's happening. And, um, you know, speaking of that partnership between families and early childhood, 
um, you know, what are some strategies that you generally, you know, give to educators for how can they meaningfully engage with families when they're in the classroom? So everything starts with the first um, conversation, be it on the phone, be it in person. If they're in early childhood, there's usually a visit to the site. And so you really want to get to know who the family is and the child. I always recommend that the family bring the child with them because we're enrolling the um, family and the child. And that gives the teacher an opportunity to know who the child is, make some bonds and start that relationship. And then as the child is going through the enrollment process, always making the connections to home. What are the values that they value? Um, do they um, promote their child during play? Is this their only child? Is this their fourth child? And so really getting an understanding of who the family is and what their goals are for the child and then how we can partner with them when they come into our programs. And so I use that now um, because I'm not in the classroom or directly at a site. I use that now to train teachers and building reciprocal relationships with the families. And that makes all the difference. It really does. And I love the term reciprocal that you just used because it's not just I'm going to ask you some questions and then I'll see you at pick up and drop off sometimes. And like, that's it. It is reciprocal, right? You want to meaningfully and authentically engage families in your program. And so that means that their feedback is also important and you want them to feel like they're also included and incorporated as a part of that community that you're building. It's not just your classroom. It's the entire school is a community and, you know, everything outside of that school is a part of that community, including those families and including those families and their background and their interests and the things that they care about, right? Sometimes we think about engaging with parents and it's like, oh, you can come in and read a book. And that is one way yeah. to engage right. with families, but families have so many other kind of funds of knowledge that they bring. And, you know, it's kind of like a disservice not tapping into that. So what if their special interest is gardening? What if something that their family does is painting together, right? There's so many ways that you can incorporate that and it can be a reciprocal relationship yes. and not just, you know, one-sided, really thinking about the holistic approach to it. Yeah. I, I remember that reminds me of my early years teaching and I was teaching in California um, in a predominantly um, Latino community and I was the minority. And one of the things that we did is that we invited the families to come in and volunteer, work in the classroom. So I remember vividly the moms fixing breakfast for the children and they were fixing what they would fix at home. They weren't fixing our traditional American food. And so there were tortillas and eggs and there was salsa and green chilies, which normally wouldn't be in an early childhood classroom, but because the um, community, that was the culture and that's what the children were accustomed to, the parents brought that in because they were helping out in the kitchen and telling us, no, let's fix it a different way. And so that partnership made a difference because they also had ownership in the classroom, in the program, and it really just um, centered culture and centered the children's things. Children ate all their food. They weren't leaving the food on the plate because it was common food that they were used to. But that's what that reciprocal engaged parent engagement looks like. Yes, yes. I was just thinking as you said that, like, 
that probably meant those kids were not leaving like just a bunch of food on their plates. Like they were probably finishing those plates because yes. <laughs> they're familiar with it and it's representing their culture. Right. And so it's so disheartening to have your food seen as like, it's a, it's a special kind of thing, or it's a, we do this every, every now and then type of thing. Like it's kind of seen as just this like, I don't know, foreign thing. Whereas it's like, no, I eat this every day. Like, you know, beans and rice are a part of my culture. Right, right. And, you know, over time, it starts to look at your food as this, you know, like it's not the norm. Like this isn't normal. It's not like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it's not this. It's like, well, no, like everyone's, you know, preferences are going to be different. I know I, I love beans for breakfast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> if you give me beans for breakfast, any kind of beans, I'm like, yes. yes. Beans. <laughs> so, it, it, I thought, yes. I thought of also like in our household growing up, I grew up in Berkeley, um, California, and there was always a bowl of fresh fruit. And so as I was teaching, mm -hmm. um, that was something that the children could go and get a snack when they wanted to snack, right? So we would have um, clementines in a bowl, maybe some apples, smaller ones. But if they were hungry, they could go grab a piece of fruit. So I was bringing my own culture into the classroom because that wasn't the norm. You know, breakfast was served at a certain mm -hmm. time, snack at a certain time. Everyone sat and had it. Then it's all cleaned up and put away. But in my family, we were snacking and eating all throughout the day. And I wanted to bring that to the children. Some days they finished them, some days they didn't, but it was available to them. Um, and also healthy habits of the things to snack on. So you can bring your own culture into the classroom as well. Yes, I, I love that. And I also do trainings with educators and that's something that I'm constantly talking about that your culture is so important too. Like you don't, we're not snakes. You don't just shed your culture outside of the door before you walk into the classroom. You, you're going to take it with you right. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere you go. Same thing with our students. They don't just shed their culture off and then come in as these blank slates in the classroom. Now they're, they're going to take that with them. So that's going to inform the way that they think and informs the way that they talk, the way they interact with other students, the way they interact with us. It is so important. And like, we need to tap into that and have an understanding. And again, circling right back around, our families are so, so, so important in uh, that gaining that understanding for those students. So agree. So you are the co-author of a book, um, which I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, so that is Stories of Resistance, and that's learning from Black women in early care and education. So can you tell me a little bit about the, like the origins of that and the idea behind it and how it came to be? So the, um, the initiator of that book was my good friend, Alyssa. And Alyssa and I were attending the National Association for the Education of Young Children annual conference. And we were in a session that was an information um, session about getting involved as leaders and being a leader. We were not yet involved. We just attended and we were sitting there thinking about how did we get here? How did we get to this table? How did we get to this place where we're interested in being involved? And in both our journeys, there wasn't a direct path. We were inquisitive and we took initiative and we sought out the things that we wanted to belong to and we made a space. And so from that idea, if you re read the book in the front of it, she gives that story. And she also gives the, the picture that this is dedicated to her daughter 
And so in that, we were thinking about how do we create a space for others who don't have a space at the table and how do we use our stories in order to do that? And so Alyssa began gathering um, authors who want to tell their story. And so we have 12 authors um, in the book. Each of us have a chapter. And my chapter was on being planted. And the idea is that wherever I am, I bring all of my ancestors with me, all of their influences with me. And where you're planted, then you need to grow and you need to contribute. And so I start off my chapter with my I am story. And it literally captures the moment I was born all the way to present day, living in Oklahoma with my um, husband and my two sons and all the life experience that I've had in that. And so each time we, we actually just presented last night um, for the National Family Child Care Association Black Caucus. And each time we gather and we share our stories, there's someone that connects and someone sees themselves and we get to mentor other Black women in the field of early childhood education. So that was how it started. And the other part of that story is Alyssa went up to the publisher Exchange Magazine and uh, offered this idea of this story. And they're like, that sounds great and pitched it. And here we are years later, book in hand, um, doing panels all over the nation to continue the dialogue. Wow. And that's, that's so incredible. And I love the the storytelling aspect of that and bringing in the ancestors and bringing in all of those experiences that lead us up today. Mm -hmm. And I think that, especially for, for new and incoming educators, and you're, you're still kind of trying to find your footing and trying to understand, you know, there's a lot that goes into teaching, and especially that first, those first couple of years are really hard. Yes. <laughs> and you're learning a lot about yourself. You're learning a lot about the students. You're learning a lot through experience and just kind of being in the thick of it. And so it does take a while for you to get your footing and for you to really really understand what your own philosophy and education is because at that point you know you're finishing college or you're going through classes and your philosophy is kind of like a hodgepodge of the people around right? you, <laughs> and you haven't quite crafted your own you know teaching pedagogy yes. yet um, and that, that happens over time and as that happens and as you start bringing more of yourself into your practice and really becoming more sure of yourself and your practice and who you want to be as an educator and a teacher knowing how all of your previous experiences have shaped that is so, so, so integral yes. and so important. And I love that you're, you're speaking to that and really bringing that storytelling part of it into it. Yeah. And th this has been, that has been my plight, which you just shared in the years, all the influencers of my teaching. And there's one point I was writing and I was sharing how I would um, transport my cases of books right? All these learnings and all these lesson planning. And then I would get to a point where I only had like these select books that I was looking at. Most of them were around reflective practice and teaching. And so the more I got footing and more understanding of who I was, I would bring that into the classroom. So when I was teaching college as an adjunct professor, I was sharing the stories of the hodgepodge of all of these experiences. And they would often ask me, like, where is this classroom that you talk about? 
I said, well, the classroom is made up of lots of experiences and I took the best of each of them. But at the core, it was the pedagogy of caring for one another in community, centering us as people, both as teachers and um, children and families. And it was looking at Bronfenbrenner's um, model to understand we, if we evolve when community surrounds us and there's layers to that community. So at the core of who I am, that story came up, um, apart. And in my story, I was teaching before I became a parent. And so I didn't become a parent until 40 and then 42, my second child. But all those years of teaching, I always imagined what it would be like to be fully supported. And so when I became a parent, I got a new lens as a teacher on how to support families because parenting is hard work and teaching, we want to partner, but we don't always know because we're starting in the field, but we learn this in community as well. So if we center people, then we can move forward in the work that we do together. Yes. Yes, thanks for that. And also, big shout out to the homie, Yuri Brockman. Yes. <laughs> I use ecological systems theories just all the yes. time. It, it's a great framework. It is. It fits everything, right? It, it does. It does. I've used it for early childhood. I've used it through for like K through 12 work. I've used it for adolescent development. It, it you can really just apply it to the, the whole lifespan development. Yes, you can. <laughs> I'm using it now in my PhD work. I'm um, finishing up my work and I'm centering where we normally center the child. I'm centering the teacher and how teacher voice, when we're centered, our story, our culture, and whatever system we're moving into, if we can be acknowledged for that piece, we will move through those systems and inform them at a greater level. So that's what I'm studying right now. So. Yes. <laughs> wow. And that's, that is such important work to study. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm going to be looking out for, for everything that oh, you good. <laughs> I want to know. I want to take in all this information. <laughs> so for the audience, if you're not familiar with um, ecological systems theory, it was developed by Yuri Broffenbrenner, and it has these kind of interconnecting circles of you know, your mesosystem, your microsystem. People always forget the chronosystem. Yes. I love the chronosystem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I see it and it's left out. And I'm like, no, bring it back. It's important. Right. <laughs> we need to know about how time contributes to this. It does take time, um, but right? it, it's a really great theory. It takes, mm -hmm. yes, it takes time, and the things that happen even before we were born impact then how we interact in community, and it has a, such a big impact on how our parents parent us and how we yes. parent after that, yes. right? And so, it's these interconnected circles, and really just saying that development happens within the context of community, and it is so so important. Yes. <laughs> uh, we are not just acted upon by development. We were actually active participants in our own development. So if you're not familiar with it, highly recommend just go, go Google it real fast. It's, it's a great framework. Um, again, it's something I use a lot in my trainings and it's fantastic. Just geeking out over it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, and so a lot of what you just spoke about with, you know, the book and you brought in storytelling. So how do you believe that storytelling can contribute to social justice in education? So storytelling for me is the core way that we keep the narrative going. Often we come, like you talked about time, we come to a point of time 
but we need to understand what happened before that and then what's ahead. And so being able to weave all of those pieces is how we do that through storytelling. And so I always start with centering the people I'm focused on, whether it's children or teachers or parents, but giving and giving space for a narrative for them to share who they are, what their beliefs are, and usually just like we're doing in conversation style. And then we start to make connections through that. And so in those connections, we tell a story that brings someone in. There's an activity I do um, with all the Zoom trainings where I have someone start off sharing their experience. And the moment you hear something that's similar to you, you put a heart up. And then we start seeing all these hearts emerge because there's a connection that was made in that story being told. And so in a very short amount of time, we understand who we are and we also understand who we're in the room with. And then that builds the foundation for us to move forward. And that's what storytelling does um, for me. I'm an avid scrapbooker, memory keeper. And so I can go back at the end of a year, which I just did, and I can recall my entire year and I could tell you a story about every single experience and those connections with the people is what's core at that. And so I think storytelling is something we need to bring back. My um, dad, he uh, always talked about being a griot, the holder of the stories. And so as we continue forward, we get to bring those stories to life as we share a little bit of ourselves uh, with one another. Yes, yes. I love so much of what you said, just said, but really connecting the art of storytelling with, at the core of it, it's connection. And that is so important. I just got, I just did a series on reading and literacy and did a lot of research on even the science of reading and how we teach reading and what that looks like to, to students. And I, I personally learned a lot <laughs> about it. And Part of that is that our brains are like, they're not necessarily geared for reading. Like that's not necessarily how our brains work, right. right? So that's why it is a difficult thing because that's not how our brains operate. And you think about, you know, the history of storytelling and how our ancestors, you know, shared stories and how those stories went kind of traveled from generation to generation to generation and how they evolved from there. And, you know, you know, our brains are really geared towards, you know, speaking, our brains are geared towards the kind of storytelling and auditory learning and things like that. And it is so important and it, it does help to build that foundation and connection. It's so important. Yes, so important. <laughs> For connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, when you, when you said that, I immediately went to the imagery. So I'm a, I'm a visual learner, so I can read a story mm -hmm. or be read to and immediately I'm creating an image of what that looks like. And so that wasn't just like by happenstance in our home growing up in the 60s. Um, we had a library of books, children's books, as well as adult books. And I can just remember sitting, listening to my dad talk about something. And then when I went away to college, I heard the same thing in college and I couldn't wait to get home to have dialogue about that, what was heard. Why? Because I had this image of what it looked like. So as little girls, I'm the oldest of three girls. As little girls, we would um, take the city bus downtown to the downtown library in Oakland. 
and we would go through the card catalog. So that's dating, right? Go through the card catalogs <laughs> and pull out the card, go find our book and then sit in a corner with a stack of books, right? But in that little moment, we were creating imagery for what adventures we wanted to have. And so as children, we could play forever by ourselves because we had all these ideas that came and all that dialogue and talking. So I can tell that story now. I can connect it to my boys when they were two years old, going to the library, picking out their books. Mm -hmm. And my sisters have the same story now with grandchildren that they're going to be building on mm -hmm. their library. So all of that happened because we were exposed and we had a story and we continued <laughs> that. But it gave us you know, possibilities beyond what was in our environment in our community. Yeah. And then when we got to go visit the places, then it was even more vivid. So like my nephew just got back from Japan with his niece on a trip. So I can just imagine like all of the stories that they're going to tell about their experience of that culture and coming back. And it starts in the home and with family. That's how it starts, right? Can you share a little bit of your perspective on the importance on mentoring and coaching and supporting teachers? Uh, I know you've talked about how you work with um, teachers and parents, and especially with our underrepresented communities. What is that importance of men mentorship come from? So I'm I'm going to tell a story about the importance of mentoring. So when I love yeah, <laughs> so when I um, when I moved to Oklahoma. I started teaching child development associate classes for the credential. It was a mandate mm -hmm. in the school district, but these teachers have been teaching for 30 something years, right? And so we started the classes. They took a, a, quite a long time to complete um, just because of their um, kind of like, it's been pushed on me, I have to do it. You know, they really went on board. And so we finished the classes, they passed, they got their CDAs and they were like, you know, this stuff really doesn't work. I know you told us to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So we had developed a relationship where they could say anything to me, right? But we still were gonna get through mm -hmm. the work. But what I did is I partnered with them in mentoring, trying out one new thing. So maybe you're not gonna use everything, but you're gonna try out one new thing. So we had this rapport that we were developing. So they finished the CDA, they met the requirement. I get this phone call mm -hmm. and they said, hey, Ms. Ramsey, we just enrolled in college. I was like, oh, congratulations, I'm so excited for you. Like, where are you going? They're like, we're coming where you are. We're going to the, your class, we enrolled in your class. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> right? And so they, <laughs> these were women who were in their late 50s who again had taught, raised their families and did all these things. And they would come into my classroom, the same pattern we had when I was coming to them during their CDA, we developed that. I walked them through the syllabus and just mentored them, you know, as a learner, applying their life lessons to this work. They finished, they got their um, credential. That was their next um, step. And then I got another phone call to say, hey, we enrolled again, and they were doing their bachelor's degree. And so over a span of about 12 years, we worked together. And I really believe it's because they knew and could trust me. 
they knew I would help guide them through the process as a mentor and as a coach. And also I would push them in places where they may not have taken a risk because um, they trusted that I was saying they could do it. That lesson mm -hmm. taught me the importance of not just giving um, my teachers information as they were taking classes, but walking alongside of them in their journey. And still today, I have students who've been in my classes for their associate degree, bachelor's degree that called me back just to ask a question on an assignment or on something they're dealing with in their program or center because there was connection there, they felt seen and validated, and they also knew, like, she'll tell me, like, which direction I need to go or let me know if I'm on track. Mentoring does that. It walks alongside of you as you go in. So back to our stories of resistance story, Alyssa and I, we could go into rooms because we had each other and we were able to mentor other people who were in the same place we are just by providing that space at the table. So it's a key um, piece of our learning and it helps us not to be in isolation, but it helps us to be in community and to be seen and heard and to test things out. And so most of my practice is around reflective practice and communities of practice is the tool that I use. And I love it because we also grow new leaders through those processes. And those new leaders then duplicate it and go on to create other leaders. So I think it is, I think it is the most important thing in teacher education. And also I've transferred that to working with families and parents as well. Because you sometimes need someone who already had a toddler to say, you're right on task. You will get through yes, this. Yes. Um, so I'm working in other community projects that allow me to help foster that with parents as well. So you can tell I'm a little passionate about that. <laughs> I, I love the, the storytelling aspect of that. And of course, bringing it in and, and reflecting with parents, because yes, it's, I, I personally am not a parent, but just working with, you know, children and how have nieces and all of that. And I know I'm constantly talking with my sister-in-law, like you're on track. They're normal. Right. <laughs> like This is normal behavior. Two-year-olds. Yeah, they have big emotions. <laughs> they do. I like the, the emotions are going to run big. It, it's okay. <laughs> like, you know, just knowing that you're on track, you're doing the right thing, that your kid's on track, it, it can be a really big help. And I know, you know, of course, going back to making those genuine connections and really authentically engaging with families because, you know, I can recognize that I have all of this background and experience in child development. And, you know, most of the time, the parents I'm working with don't have degrees in child uh, development, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they have degrees in other things or they have wealth of knowledge and so many things that I don't have a wealth of knowledge into. And so being able to work together on that and really give them that guidance and support and letting them know that we're in this together, we've got this, <laughs> uh, can be really helpful. I That was my, my experience as well. I taught for years, I didn't have children. And often I would get parents to say, well, you don't have children, so you really can't tell me like what to do. So we always talked about mm -hmm. it from a developmental um, stance because that was the knowledge that I had. And then I would introduce to parents the art of observation because we know we use that mm -hmm. in our classroom. 
And so I would use that and I would also use um, Browselton touch points on what is the behavior of the child telling us. And then that was my entryway. And then they were like, you're right, that did happen. And so we were able to work together on that. So we can use both bodies of knowledge. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, when I was an early teacher, you know, my first couple of years of teaching, again, it's hard and you're learning a lot and we make mistakes. Yes, you know? we do. That's part of, that's part of the learning process, part of the that's journey, right. right? That's right. And, you know, when I look back on my interactions with parents, you know, especially because I was going into classes and I was learning a lot. So I was getting more knowledgeable about things and you kind of get a little bit cocky at times. You're like, well, I know these things, yes. blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, parents aren't going to want to engage with you in that no. way. You're not, you're not coming out of a space from care. You're coming out of, of the space of like, well, I know all these things. So you should listen to me right. because I know them. It's like, and that was, okay, that was yeah. me. You're like, you're like 20. Calm down. Right. That was definitely me. And then I became a parent and I was like, I need to go back to all those people and tell them, here's what you need to know. Uh, the reality yes. is that you are children are partnered with us. You know, we don't always think of it that yes. way, but they're helping yes. us understand who they are and what they need. And we do need them mm -hmm. to help partner with us. So then that gave me a new lens to look at families with and teachers. So I'm really not running my classroom. Yes. It's a community and we all have to have agreement. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we're gonna have behaviors. And so when I learned that, I was like, oh, I got to go back and I got to retell this story <laughs> for everyone who's coming in. Because I was the teacher who knew it all and all of the theorists and all of the practical mm -hmm. and this is the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I became a mom and I was like, I know nothing. <laughs> I, I say that all the time, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're always teaching other people's children and we, we need to acknowledge that. And we need to know that they're going to see things within their child that we're not seeing in the classroom because it's two different environments, right? The classroom is one environment where, you know, expectations are different. There's a lot of other kids that probably aren't in their home and life, right. you know, and so we're going to see different behaviors in the classroom than like parents are seeing and parents might see different behaviors. You know, I've had, you know, I've had, you know, interactions with parents and I'm like, oh, they're super great in class. They're, you know, really helpful and they're super kind to all of their friends. Yeah. And, you know, they're just kind of this idyllic child in the classroom. And the parents like, who shot right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a complete, you know, 180 from the child that I see every day. And, and you, you and even vice versa. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I remember a story of a a child who was an older two year old, and I lived in the neighborhood that I worked in, and so I saw them in the grocery store, and I saw she was the youngest uh, with teenagers in the house. Her mom, uh, she had older siblings, and I just saw her being um, not poked at but always just pulled in so many directions. Mm -hmm. So when she would come to school, she would become the leader, and but she was in a classroom mm -hmm. with younger children. So it looked like she was trying to manipulate the younger children, but really she was trying to vie for the teacher's attention to have one-on-one. -on -one. And so because I had that experience of seeing her out in the community and then also observing in the classroom, I offered one little lens to the teacher to look at her behavior in a different way. 
And then we found out she needed speech development and she got that. And then the biggest aha was one day her mom was, they were holding hands, walking into the building, having a one-on-one conversation, which she never got because there was so much activity in the house and around her. So mom used the drop off and pickup time to connect with her. And I made notice of it. And mom was like, yeah, it's been so much better. We have our one-on-one time. And I, I could totally understand from the child's perspective what they were experiencing. And offering that to the teachers changed their interaction. And then the child is now thriving, right? So it takes all of that learning to help us to be able to really partner with children and with families. Yes, absolutely. I Again, I love so much about that story because it it gives you that insight, right? You can only do so much of what you know, right? And so we can only do the very best that we can in the classroom with the information that we have yes. and the information that we know. And so if we don't know the family dynamics at home, then we kind of look at the behaviors we see in the classroom differently, yes. right? And we make assumptions about the child or the family, right? Because, you know, I always say, our brains are geared for stories. Our brains are geared for information. And so when there's holes in that, in our, you know, understanding, we'll, our brains will just fill that in with, it, with whatever we think will make it make sense, right? right? And sometimes the things that we're filling in those gaps with aren't the accurate things, no. right? It's literally <laughs> just our brain making up information yes. <laughs> um, to make something make sense. Yeah. And so giving that context and being able to really talk to families and really get to understand, you know, some of my, my best teaching moments were when I was able to connect with parents and get a really deep understanding on what are you seeing at home and just really asking them and not coming from a place of, you know, you build that rapport and you build that relationship so that it doesn't seem like I'm only talking to you when your child is having, you know, challenging behaviors, or I'm only talking to you when there's just negative my interactions with you are consistently negative. So that when I come and ask you, Hey, notice this behavior in the classroom. Like, what are you seeing at home? Then it's going to come off to the parent. Like you're trying to judge them right. when that's not quite what we're no, trying to do. Right. Right? So right. the three steps build that relationship with yes. families, authentically building relationships and engaging with them. And then after you build that rapport, I remember talking to a, uh, you know, a parent that was in my classroom and, and I was like, you know what, I've noticed that she's, you know, your child has been a little bit more emotional the last couple of weeks than normal. Is this something you're seeing at home? You know, it's not, you know, it's not a challenging behavior. I'm not concerned, but I've just noticed this is different yeah. than her everyday behavior. Yeah. And that's when she was able to, you know, give me the background. She's like, oh, this is what's been going on. We usually see this around that time. And I'm like, okay, that gives me so much insight. So then, you know, the next day I made it a point to make sure that I was also giving that child just a little bit more one-on-one time, just giving her more space to, you know, take you know, sensory breaks from the world, yes. right? we're going through a lot, you know, just sometimes just taking a sensory break is what we yeah. need. As, as <laughs> adults and as children, to... <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Sometimes, you know, when, you, when you're operating on all cylinders and you're 100% regular things like going to the grocery store or just doing your daily life, yeah, cool. Right. You know, it's whatever, <laughs> you know, but when you're operating on like 20, 30% and that's all you've got, Things like going to the grocery store, it's overstimulating. There's traffic, there's lights, there's sounds, there's people. <laughs> right. I'm so th- right I, there right now. <laughs> yes. With all the weather so and the with yourself. people taking all the things mm-hmm. off the shelf, you're like, I don't have the energy. Yeah. Like, but I got to go to the store today. Energy, but man. I was like, yeah, too much. <laughs> 
it gets too much. It gets too much. And really even on that topic, right, of, of having a reflective practice, right? So looking at your practice, looking at your classroom, you know, why is that important that early childhood educators engage with reflective practice when it comes to their students? Yeah, so um, I think it is one of the most important things that we can do. Uh, one is we don't plan lessons without having observations to tie them to. So otherwise, it's just about us and we're filling in the blanks and it's on the wall and everything is pristine. And that's not really how life goes, right? And so reflective practice allows us both to look at the environment, which is the third teacher, right? Um, looks at the environment, looks at the children, their personal interactions individually and collectively as a community. And it looks at ourselves as how, how we're helping to guide um, and to really be eyes and ears to make offerings and then to come back to it. So I, I always recommend our teachers, when every system is different. In our system that I taught in, we had actually reflective time to come out of the classroom to plan. If you don't have that, you can still do it as the children are napping or on your schedule, you know, break time or whatnot. And it's as simple as saying, here's what was our plan today. How did it go? Talking with your co-teacher. You know, what was the highlight of your day today? What brought, what drew your attention in? And asking those simple questions, having a dialogue about it, and then making an adjustment for the next day. Because it's going to give us insight. It's going to tell us, you know, how long to stay on something, how, when to move. And I always like to give the teachers the liberty when I was an educational coach, the liberty to take a topic and stay with it as long as the children are interested in it. It didn't have to last just the week. If it lasted two, if it lasted a month, even better, because the children were going to dive into it because they were interested in that. But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't reflected on how the children were responding. And I, I would extend the reflection. I learned this practice through Deb Curtis and Margie Carter. If you're interested in following some of their work. So I am a part of their team as a um, associate of their team. But what I learned is that I can look at my work as a teacher and I could partner with the children in asking questions and testing things out, um, the scientific method of testing it out and then seeing what happened. And then let's see what we can do next, right? And then we would extend it to the family because we would learn, like there was one little boy who was fascinated with horses and he knew all of the different horses. He brought it into his play. And so we showed mom a picture of something he had did. And we asked him, you know, does he play with horses? She's like, he's ridden horses since he was two years old. His dad um, rides horses in rodeo. So this has been an integral part of his life. We had no idea. He had been in our room for a whole year and we found that out. And then we started to add different things to the environment. And so things he wouldn't do, we would add a picture of a horse or we would, uh, let's go draw. 
and let's go do it outside and let's get our saddles. And they actually brought in a saddle, mm -hmm. their cowboy hat. They did a whole teaching, the dad and the mom for the classroom. And all of this richness happened because we asked a question and we were reflecting on what he was interested in. And he was delayed in language. Mm -hmm. But when we started talking about those things, he had lots of language, right? Because he just wasn't interested. Mm -hmm. And so reflective practice yeah. allows you, what I call, is to turn things over and see it from different perspectives, like a, a Rubik's Cube. You're not going to like mm -hmm. figure it out on one side. You have to turn it in different ways. That's what I see reflective practice offering to us both personally and professionally as well. Because we need to also do it in our lives because we're not always going to be in the classroom. Yeah. And so we need to try some things out to see what we really, really are passionate about as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I love, loved the definition of reflective practice that you just gave because it's, there's so many facets to it and there's so many this components to that of looking at your environment. As you said, it's the third teacher. That's, that's something that I've taken with me from working in Reggio communities and everywhere I go, even if it's not a specifically Reggio school or specifically Reggio inspired community, I'm bringing that aspect of the environment is your third teacher. So what is, what's in my environment that's, you know, helping the students to be, you know, adaptable, that is adapting to their needs and all those great things, right? Like what is, how is that teacher, you know, looking at it in that way? And then also looking at our reflective practice as where using observation, of course, is so important. So where are my students strongest and where where what aspects are we working on right and that is so 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 important incorporating their their special interests in that can really get them to engage in things that they might not have wanted to engage in you know before especially when we're doing kind of developmental observations sometimes you know i know especially when i was you know again early baby teacher when I was doing observations, I tried to do it by the book and was like, well, can they kick this ball? Can they do this? Like, that's what it says. So I'm, they're not doing it. So they must not be able to do it when I've seen them do it before, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, it's context, right? So if I'm pulling a child aside and just we're in, you know, the classroom, I'm asking them to do things that might be a little weird to them. Right. Right? That, that's not, right. that's kind of outside of their normal context in which they might be able to do that specific thing. So being able to reflect on that and knowing what is each individual child really needing and how can I help support them in meeting those needs? Yes. So, so important. <laughs> I used to tell um, teachers, um, instead of trying to do the checklist and did you get all the observations, mm -hmm. go sit in the block area. They play there every day. What are they doing yes. as they're playing? And then watch how many mm -hmm. more observations you'll get because you're in the environment mm -hmm. seeing them do it, right? As they do it in the moment. Exactly. And then the other thing is I would share with teachers what we look for, we get more of. And so they would come with a list mm -hmm. of complaints. The children are not obeying and they destroyed. Da, da, da. Well, let's look for something specific this week. And so I said, I want you to look for interactions peer to peer and see where it shows up. So giving them that lens to be looking for that, they were like, oh my goodness, they're doing amazing things. And they came back with the whole list. And so we would just use that practice each time to pull out what was actually happening in the environment. And it changed. And one, one teacher we, we use, like show when children have joy, our teachers have joy because we were a little stressed. 
like show, like look for teachers with joy. <laughs> like what's their secret, right? Mm-hmm. And it shifted yeah. again, the focus of the coach to say, wow, she really engages when she gets to read stories and we never have her reading stories. And so it, it shifted all of that work. That's the work of reflective practice. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. I snapped to that. <laughs> I cannot agree more. <laughs> I have one final question for you. And that is, how do you reimagine education? Wonderful question. So we, uh, we actually have an initiative called Reimagining Our Work through the Exchange um, Magazine. I'm a part of that steering committee. And the reimagining for us has been really sitting with what, what are we feeling and making space for dialogue and looking at what that looks like. We started this work during COVID. Um, when um, Ann Pello and Margie Carter, their book came out, um, Teaching for Change. I may have messed up the title, but um, it's one of the Reimagining Our Work um, book offerings. So in that, they started questioning, what would it look like if we provided this space, this time? In the same way we do for children, we provided that for teachers. And so for me, reimagining our work is about really being present where we are with who we are and in sitting with one another to have the conversation and the dialogue. There's so much going on in our world for ourselves as teachers, as well as for our families. But if we could reimagine one moment, one experience and start there, and then it'll start to build from there. And so I always would lead with questions like, you know, what if what if we took that um, art material and we put it into nature? What do you think would happen? You're like, I don't know, but can we do that? Yeah, let's we can do it. So let's go do it. Let's set up the tarp. Let's put out the materials and let's see what gets created. And I'll always offer to teachers, what if you join the children instead of just setting it up? What if you picked up the paintbrush and actually experienced it with the children? And what will emerge from that? And then we capture it, we reflect on it, we see the lessons that it's taught us, and then we create a new pathway. That idea um, partly started with my sons telling me, Mom, you never play with us. I was like, I do play with you. They're like, No, you set it up and you take us places but you don't do it. I was like, I don't, I really don't. <laughs> and then I started reimagining what if, what if I got into the water? What if I was on the nature walk mm. and we had so much fun. This is when they were young and because they're very verbal children, readers and talks and dialogue, they helped me shift as a parent. And then I started bringing that into mm. the other work that I do. So reimagining is really bringing everybody into the uh, process and really just deciding, let's go down this new path, right? Um, And then as you begin to go down the path, capture what you're learning, share it with others, and then continue in the work. So that's what I think of as reimagining. Yes, 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 yes. And I, I'm so excited. I think I have, I have a couple of Ann Pillows books. So I might have that one. It's just in my stack of, of books yes. and everything. But 
uh, I can't recommend it enough that they're always really great dialogues and really great just information. It's just packed full of good information. Um, Kelly, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can my audience find you if they're looking to connect with you or look for what you're up to, what you're doing? Where can they find you? So I am on Instagram at develop people as well as my website, um, developpeople.org. That's the best way to find me. We also have a community on Facebook with stories of resistance. So definitely check us out. We'll provide the link for that. And we like to keep these dialogues going. So it will also tell you where we're gonna be um, and how we're gonna be spending time together in community. So we would love for you to join us. And then the last thing is we do have the uh, Roe Initiative, Reimagining Our Work. It is on the Exchange Publications um, platform. So I'll provide that link as well. And that's an open community that anyone can join. Mm -hmm. Lots of um, dialogue and offerings that are happening there as well. And I'll, I'll put the links for that in our show notes as well. So if you want to check out any of those options, um, it'll be right there. Um, again, Kelly, I want to thank you so much for joining me. There were so many beautiful insights and I know I'm feeling really energized and excited and it was so beautiful to connect with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you as well. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Conscious Pathways. But before you go, I just wanted to give everyone listening, if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It means so much to me. We're finally over 200 listens and downloads, which is amazing. I started this podcast in, I believe, September. I had been thinking about it for a couple of years, and I didn't think that it felt like the podcast market was so saturated and I didn't think that there was really going to be a space for me and all of you have shown me that there is a space here and that these conversations are important and these conversations are worth having so I just want to thank everyone so much for listening it again it means the absolute world to when you, I see people listening to it or commenting or sharing it with other people it it means so much to me so I just wanted to give a very very big shout out and very very big thank you to every single one of you who's ever listened to a podcast of Conscious Pathways I also want to announce that I have finally gotten my first affiliate link. Yay! I'm so excited. So if you don't know what an affiliate link is, that is, you'll usually see it with like influencers. So if they're wearing a pair of pants or a piece of jewelry and they'll link, oh, if you're interested in this, you can go to my link and you click on the link. And then if you purchase whatever from that website that they've linked to, um, that influencer will get a small permit, like small commission off of that. So that's kind of what it is. Pretty much you're bringing in traffic and business to a website. And so they're kind of forming a mutual relationship by like giving you a small commission for bringing people there. So I got my first affiliate link. So I'm so excited to share that I have a affiliate link with bookshop.org, which is a actually an organization that I um, purchase from a lot. I usually get a lot of books there. Bookshop.org is a certified B corporation, which means that it is a corporation for good. Uh, Bookshop works with local independent bookshops and connects them with their readers all across the world. And every purchase on the website is actually financially supports independent bookshops. And their platform gives those bookshops tools to compete in the online and financial support to help them maintain their presence within local communities. So it is something that I've always really stood for. I love local bookshops and local book communities. 
um, as someone who feels more comfortable shopping online sometimes, a, I want to support my local bookshop. So this is a really great way to get a, a percentage of the sales from there. Um, you can actually go on the website bookshop.org and you can click on uh, find your bookshop or your bookstore and then you can actually use any of the bookshops on there like your local one so you can use that um, you know use them as your you know platform and then they will get a percentage of the sales but if you want to support conscious pathways you can click the link in the description box below and it will take you directly to the website and then any books you buy within 48 hours after you go uh, from my link there, uh, I will get a very small, tiny little commission. Uh, so it's just a great way to support the podcast if you'd like to continue to support us. Uh, that would be great. As much as I love the podcast, it doesn't currently, you know, give me any financial gains, but I love doing it and I love sharing these conversations and I love being a part of these conversations. So I'm still doing it, but if you're inclined to support, that's one way that you can do that. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for listening to Conscious Pathways. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you are on your conscious journey, don't forget to lead with kindness and compassion. And I'll see you next time. Bye!